Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. And as we do from time to time, we love to revisit an episode from past shows. This show was originally released in 2019. We were still green and getting our sea legs, but the presentation, well, it's aged pretty well. And we hope you enjoy the show again. Welcome back to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. I'm here with Dr. Brian Goff. Hi, Brian. Hello, Sheila. Good to see you. And Dr. Jenna Lejeune. Good to see you again. I'm so excited to be here. I want to introduce you guys to someone who totally, completely blew me away. Uh, (laughs) I was at the 2019 baccalaureate um, at Stanford University, and this young man gets up, and he delivered a speech that not only just made me cry, it made me think (laughs) for days. Eden Armas is that guy, a slam poet, and also one of the most effective communicators I've ever heard. <laughs> Eden, it was so beautiful. The, the, the idea behind that <laughs> was you. that you wanted people to, to, to not only celebrate where they were, but to also reflect on the experience that got them there, yeah. including the pain. Yeah. Wow, I thought that was like so bold to do, first of all. And why? Why did you feel like that was important? Yeah, um, I think it was important because at Stanford, you know, it's like, I mean, with most elite universities, it's super common for folks to really focus on the successes and the achievements that, you know, they're supposed to celebrate at the end of their career. But I thought it was equally important to celebrate the process, right? Because that's what gets us to the end point and it's the thing we ultimately end up celebrating. Um, But we always celebrate the parts that work out, right? Which is, which is good, but we also have to recognize, right, that, like, sometimes we just have to straight up recognize and, like, give space to um, the pain, you know, the parts that really, really suck. And um, I think at Stanford, a lot of people want to say, you know, that it wasn't the greatest, you know, that it was really right. hard, that it was something to be challenged but they I don't know I, I think I think I had the opportunity to give voice to that and oh. it was such a wonderful humbling thing to do so and it was so I mean especially for kids who it's their first time away it's the first time that they're attempting to try to truly find themselves mm-hmm. and they find the experience isolating yes hard yes they find it they find college life not the brewski that everybody thought they were going to have <laughs> yeah. right yeah and you recognized that and said, I see you. I thought it was so powerful. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. I really, I really, really appreciate that. <laughs> it's the work that Brian and Jenna do here yeah. in, in terms of the mm-hmm. kind of therapy that they practice that is saying psychological suffering is part of being human. It's Absolutely. what we actually kind of need to attend to in order to grow. Mm-hmm. And so when I started doing some research um, in your background, it appears that you've you've done the growth. <laughs> Always still doing it. Always yeah. still doing it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think it started off with me being super willing to be vulnerable with people around me, um, especially going into the field of poetry. I mean, you meet folks who are putting everything that they've ever gone through on the page with their voice and then spreading it for folks to hear. I mean, it's the most incredible experience ever to hear a poem that really comes from the heart. And I think that... I don't know, it gave me a medium through which to express myself, and it also gave me an opportunity to be able to like own the things that were going through my life in a way that was powerful and also grounding, you know? Um, I'm wondering if you might share your Dear John Doe yeah, performance. Yeah, absolutely. Could you do it for absolutely. us? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I would just pull be, it up real fast. I would be so... <laughs> it, I, I, 
Um, I'm crazy about this poem. <laughs> Thank you so much. Y'all are so kind, by the way. I really appreciate everything yeah, y'all have said so cool. far. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, cool. Let me just take a quick breath for this. I'm um, getting the emotional space. Dear Mr. Psychiatrist, let's call you John Doe. Partly because it's a generic enough name to address the entire body of psychiatry in one poem, and partly because it's a white enough name to address the entire body of psychiatry in one poem. <clears throat> Dear John Doe, if I ever go back into your office, I will tell you that I've learned some shit. I will throw you some fancy terms like long-term potentiation or emotional granularity, but I will explain to you how my new favorite word is phenomenology, a human being's first-person experiences of the world around them and how I view you as a sort of collector of stories, but not necessarily an understander of them. If I go back, I will ask you if you think you can fix me, and when you say yes, I will let silence signature itself on my lips because you see, John, it's a trick question. I don't need you to fix me. I don't need you to take a sadness that is so deeply and uniquely my own and outsource it to society in a label. If I go back, I need you to make the 45 minutes I spend in your office feel like the only time you have ever seen something like this because in so many ways, John, it is the only time. I am the only person who knows what it means to feel like I do, and this burrows a sun in my chest, a sun that is there even when I feel like I am failing every good thing in my life, even when it is shadowed by the nights that collapse my good days, even when the plausibility of suicide finds a side door to step into my list of things to do today if I go back. The point is not to figure out where the source is, but to convince me that this sun is still there and will one day illuminate a morning again. Dear John Doe, if I go back into your office, I will melt the walls into Kemmerling Park on a Sunday and solidify the space between us into a red picnic table. And when we start to talk about my emotional body, I will lay it on this table for both of us to see and for 45 minutes we will not look for the places where my sadness is at work disintegrating instead i will ask you to help me guide my hand to where the light is so that i can hold something that is so bright it can only bear my name <laughs> so, I thanks for coming. <laughs> the hardest time not speaking oh into the God. microphone. Oh my oh. God! You know what? That just um, resonates with me so much about the experience people have when they go into an office and they're kind of told that they're broken or they have yeah. a diagnosis or yeah. this is, and it's their light, that sun that you described, yeah. yes. isn't being illuminated yeah. i mean i just i don't know how you found that that or what personal experience you went through but yeah. i do want to understand it what what happened for you to be able to reach to that level in that poem uh, um <laughs> i mean a lot of things um i've only recently been actually unveiling for myself the true depths and reasons for my 
mental illnesses. Um, but I think that for me, that poem came a lot from me taking a certain class in um, in college. My sophomore year it was called um, Medical Anthropology. And I was exploring all of these other concepts about how we explore mental health that I'd never done before. Phenomenology, I was exploring the idea that it was like socially situated in large ways, the way we describe mental illnesses. Yeah. And I think for me, it was like, wow, like there's so much more to putting a person in an office and diagnosing them. You know, there's so much more than the biomedical model allows us to see. There's, we are, we are, I, I mean, humans are like this like amorphous entity that is so much bigger than we, we really can, can, um, can truly appreciate sometimes. And I think it was that bigness, right? That largeness, yes. that like, ephem- like that, just, that this, this greatness of the human spirit that gave me a sense of strength I'd never, I'd never found before. Um, and it started off epistemological, right? It started off at a knowledge base, but slowly and surely it kind of went down in the deepest core of me. And I'm not still exploring how that core yeah. manifests itself in my life. <laughs> Do, uh, no, Jenna, right. I know. Like, right. I know. I, Sheila I, can see this gigantic yeah. smile on totally. my face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Part of the reason why, Eden, was because I wanted you to be in studio so yeah. they could feel your yeah. brightness, feel oh my gosh, the warmth right. that you bring. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that for many people who are hearing you, they don't, because you've done so much work on it, they don't even realize that you have a hearing disability. Yeah. You are so bright, and the sun <laughs> that you bring when you come into the studio is so large, you know? Yeah, thank you. But that was also part of the pain and the distance yeah. that you felt from human beings, No, right? no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've had to deal with it for a very young age. Um, it actually started, actually, as a painful experience. Um, <laughs> when you're a kid, you, they, they, they bring you down to test your hearing and eyesight. And I would take those hearing tests, right? But they would like press the beep and had to raise your hand. And the old ladies who were giving the test, like, would get so angry at me for not being able to do the test correctly. And oh, I thought wow. uh, from the very beginning, something was inherently wrong with oh. me. And I remember just crying. And like the two years it took for me to get my mm-hmm. hearing aids, it was this like long and arduous process because hearing aids are not insured and my parents couldn't afford them. And finally, we found a doctor who was hella good for us. And it's just been a journey, yeah, of like of figuring out how to make, you know, your way in the world where you always feel a little bit separated from folks, right? Sure. Because everyone else is operating on the shared reality of, you know, of, of, of ability, right? Of ableness. And yeah. you have to kind of like fight your way to be on that same level. Um, I don't know. I used to hate my hearing aids. Now, like, they're an absolute part of my core of being. No doubt. Yeah. No <laughs> yeah. doubt. This thing that you're studying, uh, or you just graduated um, yeah. from Stanford with this degree in neuro... I'm going to ask you to say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the neurophenomenology of emotion. Yeah. Right. What does that mean that you would go and do with it in the world? Um. So... The second part of that question is actually something I'm still figuring out. Yeah. But the first part, what does it mean? Basically, the my entire major was organized under the understanding that we can't just apply cognitive um, definitions to our, our psychology. We have to incorporate other ones, like the like phenomenology, the first person experience of the world. Um, and the entire enterprise of neurophenomenology seeks to bridge the two. Right. It seeks to have to sort of develop um, levels of, di- of um, organizing and diagnosis that we can that we can f- um, build from a larger like sociological, fi- psychological, and phenomenological viewpoint oh, and wow. bridge them with like, you know, th- the connectomes and certain type of biological processes that underlie mental illnesses. For me, though, 
that's like the application part of it, right? Like yeah. what psychiatrists or psychologists can bring into the office when it's when they're speaking to each other about the nature of their work. For me specifically, it was about it was the core of my entire major, bridging the, like the bit, the macro with the micro, right? Yeah. Like finding all the ways in which huge processes that certain people are more um, adept at understanding, right? The sociology of things, the history of things, and bridging them with the with the biology of stuff. So. I think that is so cool because that's actually what I was picking up in that the Dear John spoken word was yeah. mm-hmm. what was, what struck me about it was, wow, here's this guy who is sort of talking about these bigger pictures of we all suffer, you know, yeah. that this darkness is part of the process sort of thing. And yet at the same time, you're talking about and I am the only one I, I obviously you said it much more yes. beautifully than me but, <laughs> but like yeah. I am the one unique person who knows my experience and that that is genius being able to hold both of those as true and yeah. so oftentimes people come to our office and ask what's wrong with me yeah. and yeah. they're looking for an answer and I don't like the question right? right that the question presupposes that a there is something wrong right and B, that I know what your experience is. Right, right. I don't know you. Right. I'm the expert in something, but you're the expert in you, in you. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, then, and then the third thing is that somehow me giving it a word doesn't reduce it to the point of just being ridiculous. It becomes so reductionistic right. that it's like, I am not my label or my diagnosis. And what we are diagnosing is something I fundamentally have a problem with. And that is that there's something that needs to be fixed as opposed to I'm moving around in the world where I am struggling, where I am not able to do the things that matter most to me, Mm -hmm. that I'm not living sort of the fullest version of me, help me figure out how to do that. And it's like, I actually have some skills and I have some, I have a point of reference because I too have struggled with and do struggle with how do I live my best life and how do I have the most contact with the things that matter to me. Right. Yeah. Right. So Eden, um, I think I heard it said that you were going to travel abroad and that you were hoping to work in this realm that you're interested in, in yeah. talking to other cultures about how they define happiness and what how you define happiness. How do you define happiness? Uh. <laughs> Especially now. Yeah, well... Um, define the universe. Give three examples. <laughs> <laughs> These are the questions I ask myself all the time and never have answers for. <laughs> and, then, and then how so do you, you spell God's speaker. name? Yeah, but you were the speaker, so you should know that. <laughs> oh my goodness. So appropriate, though, honestly. These are the yeah. things I'm asking myself right now. I mean, you know, I actually want to maybe um, bring it back to somebody you previously interviewed, Scott Erickson. Um, I was, I was, you know, look, reading your, um, pre- or listening to your previous podcast, and he said something that really struck me. Struck me. It was. When people think oh, people think about like what's meaningful to them, yeah, they're seeking a knowing answer, right? Yeah. But really, what they're looking for is the rapturous experience of being alive. He said that, and I was like, oh my god, like I've never heard it put so well. Right. Because yeah, I feel like, you know, happiness is, is a transient state. I mean, I feel like you know, at some point, you have hella serotonin in your brain, and you think things in your life click, and you feel great, right? Yeah. But I think what we truly strive for is meaning, right? Deep. Gosh, like just just deep, like flowing, effusive meaning, right? And I think that's what really um, I'm looking for. But I realized recently <laughs> that you can't look for it directly, right? You can't mm-hmm. like 
sit in your chair and think, what is the most meaningful thing I'm going to do today, right? You have to do something, yeah. and it's only a retrospective analysis that you really realize right. this is the thing I was like meant to do, right? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting because where I met you was in this baccalaureate where kids are thinking, I think I need to do this so that I can have meeting, and if right. I get that job and I live in that city, then I have the right. meaning that I deserve, right? Right, right. And I was talking with the engineers here today, and every one of us that came to these careers that hold so much meaning for us came to them through this very circuitous like I'm just going to try that and wow yeah. that had a lot of meaning I'm going right. to keep doing more of that right right and so part of what I really want to thank you for bringing here today <laughs> is the idea that we just live our lives the best way we know how right. with our values right. and you're going to find it eventually you will find those right. things that mean the meaning. Don't stress out yeah. if you don't have the perfect job. Right. Don't worry if you don't have the perfect boyfriend. Right. Don't worry about Instagram likes. It does not <laughs> matter. matter. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Eden, so no, much, man. That. It was Thank so you. wonderful to speak with you. <laughs> really, really Thank loved it. Thank you so it. much, Alice. Thanks yeah, for coming. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. expect to see you in the big stars one day. And yeah. So, yeah, thanks again. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Beyond Well, and if you love the podcast, we would love a review. You can leave it at iTunes, Spotify, or over on Podbean. One of the things that we're doing is asking for contributions to the Foundation for Excellence in Mental Health Care because they believe, like we do, that suffering is being human. Thanks again. From Portland, Oregon, this is Sheila Hamilton. Bye.